0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman.
1: Gene Parker lived on the streets and he called his friends when he needed some help.
2: Finally this this Gino, I'm at the shelter. Give me a call if you can, because I'm trying to hook up a ride up to the hospital tomorrow so I can stay warm somehow.
1: From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankoski. Gene Parker died after being hit by a car, and reporters Jack Rodolico and Natasha Haverty wanted to learn more about his story and about homelessness in New Hampshire. We'll talk to them. We'll also listen to The Sound of Progress from 1951.
2: Unless you're a chemist, the story of Pylenol may sound like something out of Buck Rogers, a transformer liquid with high dielectric strength. That won't sludge
1: today. There's another name for that compound. It's PCBs. Coming up the history of a company town still recovering after decades of this contaminant polluting the river. And the bald eagle's comeback in New England is good news, but not if you're a cormorant or a puffin or an osprey. It's next
3: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, the toxic legacy of a big company in a company town. But first.
4: Lisa, say, you they're supposed to be down here to get you to pick me up. Where are you? Bye.
1: That's the voice of Gene Parker, leaving a message for a friend. Gene had been living on the streets of Concord, New Hampshire for five years. About 20 minutes after he left that message, he was hit by a car, and he later died. Gene's story led to a lot of questions about homelessness in that state, and New Hampshire Public Radio reporters Jack Rodolico and Natasha Haverty tried to find some answers. Their series, No Place to Go, Homeless in New Hampshire, looks at chronically homeless people like Gene Parker and as you'll hear, others who live on the edge of homelessness. Jack and Natasha, welcome to Next.
0: Thank you.
5: Thanks for having us.
1: I want to know more about Gene's story. Who exactly was he? Tell, tell us about him.
5: Gene Parker had kind of a checklist of obstacles that kept him out of public housing, which is a big thing place he could have gone, a guy like him would have hoped to go, and then shelters. So a big one was his criminal record. He committed a really serious offense, a sex offense that had him incarcerated for 10 years. Uh, He was a serious alcoholic. So at one point, he actually was offered shelter uh, down in Boston. But because of his proclivity for drink, he didn't want to stay in that shelter because one of the conditions of being there was that you had to be sober Eventually, while he was living as a homeless person, he lost his legs, which I think we'll get into. So then he, he had criminal r- record, alcoholism, and he was disabled. So now not only are you trying to get a guy with a sex offense with a serious addiction indoors, which is hard enough, now you need a ramp to get him through the door.
1: Um, here's one of Jean's friends, a woman named Lisa Urena, uh, in this tape. She's showing you some of the places that Jean used to sleep, including an actual hole in the ground.
6: He need to get out of his wheelchair. From here, he get out, right? And then he go like this.
0: You get on his knees. Yeah,
6: and then go through into there.
0: So he would he would drag himself down the stairs? Uh-huh. And right to a spot to sleep?
4: Yeah, no, after he got here, he don't move anymore.
1: How did you find Gene's friends, the people who who knew him, to help tell his story?
0: It was this sort of weird coincidence where we we knew that Gene had died, um, and we were curious to learn a little bit more about him. And then um, I, uh, you know, I actually sat on this panel uh, for for homeless individuals to ask the media questions, and one of them was this woman, Lisa Arena. She was holding a picture of Gene that she just carried with her. And she had collected, after Gene died, she, she had all of these voicemails from him that she couldn't bring herself to delete. And so she was the first real good friend of his that we met. And then we started just calling, cold calling advocates, public defenders, people that were likely to have worked with him until we found people that knew him well and then those individuals connected us with further homeless individuals.
1: You mentioned these voicemails and they're they're very powerful the voicemails that, that Gene left for, for Lisa. Let, let's listen to one and it, it happened at a time when his tent burnt down.
4: This is Gino. Guess what? My tent just burnt down to the ground. I ain't got no place to go. So anyways Give me a call, because I might need to ride out of here, OK? Thank you. Bye.
1: Why did his tent burn to the ground?
5: So Gene Parker kept warm in the winter with a propane heater in his plastic tent. And uh, one time, it, it resulted in some really serious burns that uh, ultimately led to frostbite, because they happened in the winter. And then he had to have his legs amputated.
1: In your story, you talk about the difference between Gene before his legs and after his legs. You actually have people talking about that. And uh, I I can only imagine how difficult it was to live on the streets before that. But life for Gene got quite a bit more difficult after he lost his legs.
0: One of the things that we were just sort of you know, fascinated by was the fact that homelessness itself becomes a sort of chronic illness, that there are conditions that bring you to homelessness, and then there are conditions that happen just because you are chronically homeless. So with Gene Parker, you know, he was on the streets because he was a sex offender. You could also say he was on the streets because he was an alcoholic, and that's a disease, and maybe he couldn't get out of his own way. But then he lost his legs because he was on the street. And then once he lost his legs, it was nearly impossible to get off the street again. You, you've talked about
1: the advocates and the friends of his, including other homeless people who attempted to help Gene throughout the years. Was there anybody in government or the public health system, a nonprofit who was really trying to help him out? Was there some official help that Gene was getting?
5: I mean, you, you know, you can talk to police officers or uh, people that are maybe more in the 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 system the city or state system and everyone had heard of Gene but the the guy that was most embedded in a system in a nonprofit was an advocate we met named Andy Labrie and he's a character unto himself he's someone who is now legally blind um, but continues to you know walk over the train tracks through the scrub to to meet with his clients who are homeless uh, and he was really I'd say Gene's most fierce, fiercest advocate who knew how to work this system and try to find him housing.
1: I would email everybody on my email list saying, I'm still looking for housing. I actually even put an ad on Craigslist that I was looking for housing for a sex offender and could anyone please help me. I got one filthy response and that was it. We should note that Andy Labrie did eventually find a landlord who was willing to take Gene Parker in, but Gene unfortunately died before he could move into that place. Gene's story, as you said, Jack, is so complicated by the, the fact pattern of his life, the decisions that he's made, his inability to stop drinking. So he had a hard time finding shelter. But there are many, many other chronically homeless people who don't face that same number of obstacles, but yet they also can't find a place to live in New Hampshire.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, so, so let's talk about what chronically homeless means, right? It's actually defined by the federal government. Um, and it essentially means that you have a disability and you're on the street for a very long period of time, either for one long period of time or for repeatedly over the course of years. And anywhere you go in the United States, the chronically homeless individuals like Gene Parker are the ones that people see. You know, this is this is the visual aspect of homelessness, the people who are panhandling often or camping out on a city limit. Um, they're really a minority of the individuals who are homeless. You know, the, the statistics are really fuzzy, but anywhere from 10% to 25% of homeless people are chronically homeless. And and the reason the government and advocates um focus so intently on this minority of people is that the bulk of money spent on homelessness goes to these individuals. So why is that? Well, when you live on the street um, for years and years, Where do you get your healthcare? In the emergency room. You probably don't have a primary care doctor, right? Or a family medicine doctor. So you repeatedly go to the emergency room for conditions that are preventable. um, Sometimes for, you know, almost needlessly just for a place to stay warm. You wind up running in with cops again and again and again. Um, And it's actually a heck of a lot cheaper just to get them an apartment. It costs something like a quarter of the amount of money um, to just put somebody like Gene Parker into an apartment permanently.
1: Who are who are the other 85% or so? I mean, who who are the people who don't have homes, places to go but maybe don't count as chronically homeless that you, that you looked at.
0: They're individuals who you could call them housing unstable, whose whose finances are unstable enough that One thing can happen, you know, your car, your muffler goes on your car, you need to spend $800 on the car, or you get sick, you're doing low wage work, you miss three days of work, so you miss a paycheck for half a week. The reasons they are homeless are all of the reasons that the economy is not currently working for people who are low income, you know, so so low wages, high rent, they just can't quite make ends meet.
1: And you found people living at a place called the PK Motel. And let's listen to your story.
5: A woman named Ami lets us into her room up on the second floor of the PK motel. Her long brown hair is pinned up high. She holds an unlit cigarette in her hand.
4: Like I said, I don't have much sitting room. She can sit on the edge of the bed.
5: Ami, who's asked us not to use her last name, has packed her whole life into this room. Plastic bins of clothes, boxes of canned food she gets from the food pantry and heats up in her microwave.
0: The object, she says, is most important to her, a photo of her holding her daughter in the hospital just after she was born.
4: I've never been without that picture. That picture has always been beside my bed no matter where I've been or where I've lived.
0: Ami says her life really fell apart after her partner assaulted her so badly that in order to heal, she had to have metal rods and screws put in to hold her spine together.
4: Sleeping is very difficult. Um, I have days where I can get up and I can move around pretty good, and it's an okay day. And I have days where I can't. So since I don't know what days are going to be good, how do you really hold down any kind of job?
0: Because of her injury, Ami collects Social Security. Most of that money goes to rent for this room, five fifty each month.
4: It's not that it's an awful place to be, but it's not where I want to be.
5: The PK Motel rises up over a big, dusty parking lot partway down a rural road in Effingham, close to the main border and wedged between the lakes and the White Mountains. The place looks more like a warehouse than a motel. It's not a place families stop on vacation. It's where local town welfare offices send people when they're out of options.
0: And behind each of these doors are stories of people stranded by poverty. For Ovi Charest, who's 31, he says he's stuck because he can't get a job.
2: Jobs around here are tough. Um, the rates aren't that good, they're awful.
0: Ovi lives just a couple doors down from Ami. He says even if he had a job, he couldn't get to it because like a lot of folks at this motel, he doesn't have a car. When we talk to him, he's just about to take a three hour round trip walk to the nearest grocery store with his friend, Francesca Wright.
5: Wright says when most jobs are low wage and part time, it's hard to get a leg up and out of a place like this. She works at McDonald's. I'm
4: 30 years old, I've got 15, 16 years experience
5: and they were paying me $775. Over on the other side of the building, Stephanie Adjutant stands outside her room. She has a car and a job.
0: But on the day we meet her, she tells us she can't get to work because she didn't have money for gas. I don't like living here, but I do it because like it's, at least it's a roof over our head. She lives here with her fiancé and two babies. She's 20 years old. You know, I mean, I have food stamps, but it doesn't last the whole month because I have to buy formula. So. Adjutant's boys are the third generation in her family to live out of motels, homeless. A lot of people got here because they were running away from something. Adjutant's fiancé says he became homeless as a teenager. He ran away from home after his father put a gun to his head.
5: Sitting on the stone step outside her room, Vicki Leather says this motel is a refuge for her and her husband. Next to her is a bed of flowers they put in as soon as they arrived. The flowers are plastic, but she says next year they'll put in real ones.
4: It's time that my husband and I had a life of our own, because we've always been raising our grandkids. And between us, we have 22.
5: The Leathers moved here from Maine a couple months ago. They're vague about why they left, but Vicky says they were surrounded by drugs and drug addicts.
4: I mean, it's got so bad down there. People was taking their cellars and turning them into crack houses and so many children getting, you know,
5: hurt out of it.
0: Back up in Ami's room, she says she's been homeless for months.
5: But before the PK motel, she says it was worse.
4: For a couple nights. (laughs) I have to laugh about this. I actually slept in a laundromat for a couple nights because it was warm.
5: Ami says she's been on the wait list for subsidized housing for eight years. In the meantime, she lived in substandard apartments. One place had no heat. After ending up at the laundromat, she met a social worker who told her about the PK Motel.
0: Most of the time, Ami says she's working on an exit plan.
5: She's on the phone with insurance, with family court, with the housing authority. She says she actually has a deadline for herself to get out of here. This
4: January coming up, I'll be 50. Wow, it happens fast. And I hope not to be homeless or staying at the PK at 50. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed.
5: And that's one thing a lot of people who live in these rooms have in common. They're thinking about leaving.
0: They just don't know where they're going yet.
1: That's Jack Rodolico and Natasha Haverty reporting for New Hampshire Public Radio and their series on homelessness. Natasha, near the start of that piece, you said something interesting, that the motel is a place where local town welfare offices actually send people when they're out of options. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
5: Sure. You know, we've been talking about homelessness in cities and and the advocates that we met, and you can— Literally, if you're in a city, uh, there's a there's a service called 211. If you're homeless and you dial this number and you say I am in trouble, you know I need a roof over my head, you can dial it. And at least we've been told by advocates who answer that phone uh, that that you'll get help in in 10 minutes or 20 minutes. You will have some options put before you of okay, here's what we're going to do to help you out. But in more rural parts of the state, like where this motel is, where the PK motel is. Um, you might call up that number and not get a response for hours. And in the same way, welfare offices up there tend to be open a couple days a week. Uh, so so it, it, it introduces this host of problems of how do you respond to those people Jack identified as really walking that line.
1: According to data that we looked at from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, homelessness in New Hampshire dropped about 36 percent between the years 2007 and uh, 2015, It's based on something called the annual point-in-time counts of the homeless. Uh, What basically happens is a night in January, volunteers go out and count the number of homeless people, uh, both those who are in shelters and those who aren't. Based on your reporting, how accurate do you think that number is? is? Is New Hampshire really doing that much better than other states in New England at solving the homeless problem?
5: you know we're not sure there's really evidence that that New Hampshire is and anyone you talk to will tell you that those point in time counts are really unreliable ways to take stock of who really doesn't have a home in the state uh, in cities you you know it's one night of people walking around scouting out the people they can find who are sleeping outside but as we know, homelessness is largely an invisible, kind of out-of-sight problem. Then you're talking about doing it in rural areas, where a lot of times you're relying on people showing up and saying, yep, yeah, put me down. I'm, I'm homeless. Add me to your list. So they're just not real scientific methods we're talking about in figuring out, you know, how big is this problem in New Hampshire or any other state.
0: If you compare the 2016 and 2015 numbers in New Hampshire, um, homelessness according to those numbers went down i think it was 9%, right? and we we asked the head of the biggest shelter in the state about that, and he just kind of scratched his head. He's like, I don't think that's necessarily true. We also talked to a woman who ran a shelter in a rural part of the state. She said she was seeing more people this winter in her shelter than she had in previous years. Um, More families, more children, more people addicted to opioids and heroin. Uh, Some advocates are just kind of frustrated with the way the government counts. They say, you know, why don't you count in the summertime, for example, you know, when there are more people on the streets? don't you find a way to incorporate um, individuals like at the PK Motel or doubled up with family? You know, the, the count sort of has to be done. There has to be a way of quantifying the problem so that the federal government and states can create policy. Um, but there, at this point, there is no reliable way to count the number of homeless people that that we found.
1: Natasha, it's obviously a very complex problem. But in talking to some officials about this here in Connecticut over the years, and certainly for this story, you get the sense that the high cost of housing is going to be one of the biggest contributing factors. Is this really a housing question, or is there something else at the root of this problem uh, that you found from your reporting?
5: So I think housing is a huge part of this, but I'd be lying if I told you that That's the big takeaway for us is that, oh, if if housing was a little more affordable, this problem would be solved. It's so complicated, and it it also – you have to take into account – people's choices um, and, and where they have decided that they're safe. A, a lot of people we talked to were trying to get out of situations that maybe was a permanent home but where they did not feel safe either you're talking about abuse or um, a death in the family or just literally the the house they're living in isn't being maintained. So there's so many factors. I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but mm. that's the truth.
1: Jack Rodolico and Natasha Haverty are the reporters for New Hampshire Public Radio, whose series is called No Place to Go, Homeless in New Hampshire. Thank you both so much for joining me. I really appreciate it.
5: Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, John. Coming up, PCBs polluted the Housatonic River for decades. We'll look at the role a corporate giant played in a story of prosperity and contamination in the Berkshires. This is next next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the common sense fund supporting the new england news collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming this past january a corporate announcement rocked two new england states
0: general electric said today it is moving its headquarters from fairfield connecticut to Boston. GE CEO Jeffrey Immelt said the move is in part to be closer to Massachusetts 55 colleges and universities and the state's quote technologically fluent workforce.
1: It didn't hurt that Massachusetts gave the giant conglomerate about 150 million dollars in incentives. In Boston civic leaders cheered, in Connecticut they pointed fingers. At WBUR's daily show Radio Boston, they wondered about GE's history in Massachusetts.
2: In 1903, the Stanley Electric Manufacturing Company was purchased by the General Electric Company and, in 1907, became the nucleus of what is now the Pittsfield Transformer Plant.
1: That's archival tape from a 1972 promotional video that the show dug up. Pittsfield, which is in far western Massachusetts, was the ultimate company town. It stayed that way for about 80 years. By the early 1990s, most of the jobs had left and the town had to confront another problem, the decades of contamination to the Housatonic River, which winds through the Berkshires into Connecticut and finally into Long Island Sound. That contamination came from PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls. The government declared them a probable human carcinogen in 1979 and banned them from use, but the damage had already been done. Next week, we'll look at where those cleanup efforts stand, but first, Radio Boston's Meghna Chakrabarty tells us a lesser-known story about the people who worked at the GE plant in Pittsfield and their complicated feelings about General Electric. After all, the company used Pittsfield and its workers as an example of their innovative spirit.
2: More than anything else, reliability in action is people. People with talent, ideas, concepts, and know-how. Tailoring the molecule forging materials and machines, mines and manpower, all for a single purpose, for reliability in action.
7: The electric is more than- General Electric was really the main thing.
8: Bob Cudmore reported and hosted mornings at WBEC Radio in Pittsfield from 1968 until 1980. So he was actually one of the few people who didn't work at the mammoth Pittsfield plant. According to GE, at its height in the 1940s, some 13,000 people worked for GE Pittsfield out of a city of 50,000 people.
7: In fact, my uh, wife, who was alive at the time, and told me once that she was at a uh, social gathering, or, or she said it happened at multiple social gatherings, and that uh, other women would come up to her and say, well, what does your husband do at GE? And she said, well, he doesn't work at GE. And she said they had a look in their face like, you poor dear, you know, you've, you you've people might even be on relief or something like that.
8: GE's footprint in Pittsfield was huge in every way imaginable. The sheer size of the plant itself, a sprawling campus, more than 300 acres in the heart of the city, along the banks of the Housatonic River.
9: I don't know how many buildings they had. I'll guess they had 40, 50 buildings. And some of them are torn down. Some of them are still here. So it was a a large plant.
8: Nicholas Baraski is 89 now. He worked for GE for 38 years. He was the head of the entire Pittsfield Transformer and Ordnance divisions. Baraski says back in the day, GE was the kind of company that could make a career. After all, he says, just look at who else got their start in Pittsfield. Jack Welch, GE's most famous CEO, who first joined the company as a chemical engineer in the plastics division.
9: I worked for him. He was an avid golfer. He and I played a lot of golf together. But I was very fortunate. I I moved quite well, further than I ever thought I'd move.
8: Just about everyone we talked to felt something similar. They were proud. Pittsfield was an old mill town that could have gone under in the end of the 19th century, but GE came in and helped revive it. Not only that, Pittsfield workers genuinely loved being part of a company that epitomized 20th century American industrial ingenuity.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
8: Thomas Blaylock started working at GE Pittsfield in 1966, where he was an engineer in the high voltage lab.
2: We really were kind of at the top of the game in this high voltage transformer and high voltage research area.
8: And the corporation knew it. Just listen to this 1952 GE promotional video.
2: They're almost up to full voltage. Uh, Hold your ears. The destructive current of this man made stroke is greater than that occurring in eighty percent of nature's strokes. How have the mighty fallen? Here the erstwhile power of the gods is actually yoked and led out to labor at the will of man. And you know, you walk in the door and you're you you have the sight of the entire building from one end to the other, a quarter of a mile away.
8: Again, Tom Blaylock.
2: The overhead cranes, there were there's two cranes in that building. Each one will lift 350 tons, and they were used together to lift the heaviest transformers. Somebody once said to me, "You never, you know, you never get tired of being in this building and watching these mammoth transformers flying through the air, as it were, and just all kinds of activity like that. That was just fascinating."
8: Those transformers needed to be cooled, and GE's preferred coolant for its largest transformers was a high-quality mineral oil. But for smaller transformers, such as those used inside factories, schools, or office buildings, starting in the 1930s, GE began using a coolant called pyranol, explained here in a 1951 GE video.
2: Unless you're a chemist, the story of pyranol may sound like something out of Buck Rogers. Broadly speaking, you take a molecule of diphenyl, replace five hydrogen atoms with five chlorine atoms. Result? A transformer liquid with high dielectric strength that won't sludge or oxidize. But more than that, it won't burn.
8: Sounds like the perfect industrial chemical. But pyranol has another name. You guessed it. PCB or polychlorinated biphenyl, banned in the U.S. by 1979 as a probable human carcinogen, but prior to the ban, GE was making thousands of these small transformers. Nick Baraski, the former head of the transformer division, says pyranol was ubiquitous and employees were in intimate contact with it,
9: including me. I've worked in it up to here, changing links and transformers,
8: mm-hmm. up to your up to your elbows. You were saying, in yeah,
9: your yeah, okay. I've walked in it. Well, we did. I mean, it was just something we did.
8: All those PCBs had to go somewhere. They went into the groundwater and then straight into the Housatonic River. Again, engineer Tom Blaylock.
2: People were not intentionally throwing it away, but piping systems always leak. They just always do. It's a pretty big plant, and you can imagine the extensiveness of the piping systems in a plant like that. And you just can't keep track of every foot of pipe. And so, well, we're talking from the 30s to the over 40 years. Yeah, a lot of pyranol leaked.
8: The company also dumped barrels and PCB-soaked bricks at various sites on GE land in Pittsfield. We don't know the total amount of pyranol that made its way into the Housatonic, GE estimates that there could be up to 70,000 pounds of PCBs left in the river today. The EPA puts that number at 600,000 pounds. And that's after phase one of an extensive cleanup in the heart of Pittsfield that followed a 1998 consent decree between GE, Pittsfield, and federal and state governments. But back in the 1970s, there were more roundabout ways that people knew something wasn't quite right with the water. Here's how radio reporter Bob Cudmore remembers an unusual crime report near Silver Lake in the heart of Pittsfield.
7: I was working one weekend when the police pulled a car out of the Silver Lake that had gone in the lake at some point in the past. They didn't know when, and there was a dead body inside. I asked the officers, and they said, well, I think this man died, you know, many, many weeks, months ago because the body's very badly deteriorated. But then they determined that the car and the man had gone into the lake only the week before or something like that, and the chemicals had acted on his, uh, his person in that, in that way.
8: GE and the EPA finished the cleanup of Silver Lake in 2013. As we mentioned, by 1979, PCBs were completely banned. Plant manager Nick Baraski says GE, however, had seen the writing on the wall even before that.
9: I'm an environmentalist, too. I'm a fly fisherman. was a fly fisherman. I don't do it anymore. My personal feeling is that nothing should go in the river. Nothing should go in the river. The, of course, the stuff got in the river, because because of uh, well, I would have to say carelessness, I guess. You know, it wasn't in, it wasn't deliberate. They didn't pour it in the river. It came from the plant. It drained into the river. I could, the only one thing I can say about the use of uh, pyridal is I was the guy who ordered it to be stopped. All right.
8: When did you do that?
9: 1977.
8: Why'd you do that?
9: Because I didn't want the government yelling at me. Not because I thought it was dangerous.
8: Okay. It's easy to pass judgment at a distance. Easy to point out the logical inconsistencies in what Baraski says. He's an environmentalist, but he doesn't think PCBs are dangerous. Nothing should go in the river, but he stopped GE's use of pyranol just because he wanted the government off his back. Well, we thought a lot about what Baraski told us. And in his words are the complicated, conflicting feelings GE's longtime Pittsfield employees have about the company. No one we talked to loved the fact that the company contaminated the Housatonic with vast amounts of PCBs. But as you heard Baraski insist, he holds on to this belief that it wasn't deliberate. And that really matters to him because to this day, Nick Baraski also says GE was the best company he ever worked for.
9: Ruth, my wife, and I, when I retired, we continued our work in charities and, uh, and did a lot of good in that area. Set up a lot of funds for kids and scholarships and funds, both, from various schools and organizations. So... But GE was the source of my being able to do that. So, so it was a good company. I I thought it was an excellent company.
8: Here's how Bob Cudmore, the former Pittsfield radio host, puts it.
7: GE did a lot in Pittsfield. You know, number one, it did pay its workers well and also was much involved in community activities. I mean, some go so far as to call that welfare capitalism. Pittsfield was known for having these big parades and... GE always put out a, a big float. You know, they had a um, like a fire-breathing dragon. I remember one Halloween parade and some incredible patriotic thing. I mean, GE in Pittsfield was the first place that organizations, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the you know the anti-poverty agencies, whoever needed money for quote-unquote good works, they'd be the people that you'd approach because they would be the ones that would be likely to support you.
8: But, of course, the flip side to that is a community that becomes reliant on that seemingly endless corporate support.
7: Everybody referred to GE as the GE, the GE. It was like you were talking about the government. You know, it was it was seen as something that was uh, immutable or that it it wouldn't change. But, of course, we found out, you know, that it could change and, in fact, uh, did change.
8: GE left Pittsfield. And it took those thousands of jobs and all that corporate largesse with it.
2: It was pretty much of a shocker.
8: Tom Blaylock was still at the high voltage lab when in nineteen eighty six GE announced it was shutting down the Transformer Division.
2: I remember being told that at the time that the plant it was decided to close down, that we actually were in the black, but we were not far enough in the black to be producing enough return on the investment in the plant. As I recall the CEO of General Electric was Jack Welsh and I think that he was guiding the company into directions other than heavy manufacturing, which turned out good and bad. <laughs> it turned out good because he really drove the, the value of the company up tremendously during that era, but bad in that now, um, there, I guess there is, is some feeling that maybe all of that went just a
9: little bit too far.
8: Nick Baraski is more direct. He has one word to describe the effect GE's departure had on Pittsfield.
9: Disastrous.
8: A slow motion disaster. By the early 1980s, G.E. Pittsfield employed only 7,000 workers, a little more than half of what it had been in the 1940s, according to a 1984 Boston Globe article. So as the numbers continued to shrink, so did the tax base and the corporate philanthropy that was so essential to the city. Again, Bob Cudmore.
7: You go to, you know, maybe some of the uh, union members and their, their offspring to this day, you know, are mad at G.E.
8: Ultimately, G.E. moved on. Now it's coming to Boston, seeking to remake itself into an industrial and tech company for the digital age. But no matter what kind of company it becomes or where it goes, GE leaves behind a complex legacy in western Massachusetts that the people of Pittsfield have to live with. After
7: GE pulled out, the people didn't blame GE so much for that, but they did start blaming GE for the pollution. You know, it was all well and good that this company was here and provided steady employment for many decades, but now look at this big mess.
2: Yes, we're proud of our past achievements and present talents and facilities, but the real reason for asking you to review them with us is to help us jointly set our sights on a bright electrical future together in the soaring 70s. That's Power distribution. Pittsfield style.
1: That's WBR's Meghna Chakrabarty reporting for the show Radio Boston. The series was produced by Jamie Bologna. For links, go to nextnewengland.org and our Facebook page at Next New England. Coming up next week, GE cleaned up contamination in the Housatonic River near the plant site, but there's still a big debate about what to do with the rest of the river.
7: We've heard, you know, GE saying, well, you know, you're, you're taking too much out, you're going to hurt the river. Other people saying, you're not taking enough out, you're going to hurt the river and all the critters. So, you know, we're, we're someplace in the middle and we're hearing criticism from both sides, but that's not a surprise. And you
1: know. <laughs> oh, and by the way, that massive GE plant still sits vacant in the heart of Pittsfield. This past June, a developer announced plans to build a Walmart there. They say it could create about 100 new jobs. Coming up, birds of prey, a rebound for eagles, and our reporter learns falconry. It's next. This is Next. I'm John Dankoski. The video is one of the most thrilling and terrifying things you'll ever see. Three osprey chicks sit atop a nest in Hog Island, Maine. Then, out of the fog, a bald eagle appears, moving fast, One of the chicks hunkers down, another takes flight, the third hesitates and in a violent but seamless motion is snatched in the eagle's talons. The video shocked viewers of the osprey cam that had been set up by explore.org and Audubon to chronicle the chicks since their birth this spring. That includes Steve Kress, Audubon's bird conservation expert who's been working on the main seacoast for 43 years.
2: Not all young animals will be able to survive. The environment will not be able to support all those young. So what we're seeing here is a predator selecting out uh, one of those. And we know, too, that that eagle is probably feeding its that uh, that unlucky chick uh, will help its own young to survive into the future.
1: And that need for eagles to feed their young is increasingly causing trouble for other bird species. The bald eagles made a remarkable resurgence in New England after being nearly extinct. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever has
6: our story. By the early 1980s, the bald eagle population in Maine had dropped to fewer than 40 nesting pairs. But they're flourishing now. There are well more than 700 pairs nesting in Maine. See, there's one. Bird tour operator and scientific researcher John Drury pilots his old lobster boat out into Penobscot Bay, about 15 miles off Rockland he has been visiting a rocky archipelago of seabird colonies here for decades. He watches a black-headed juvenile eagle arc into the air and two gulls rising to chase it off. See, there's one after There's one there after him right now. See him? They'll, you know, try to keep him off of there. Around the bend, a handful of great cormorants, big dark birds with long hooked beaks, guard their nests. And out on a nearby ledge, several more young eagles loaf. Watch. Moved out here to forage, close to the rich, delicious birds. From Drury's perspective, that's a problem. Those great cormorants living under the eagle's gaze are some of the last to breed in the U.S. Once extirpated here, the great cormorants, too, have made a comeback, reaching a peak of 240 nesting pairs in the early 1990s. And there are 40 pairs this year. And the eagles have been attacking every colony every year, pretty much. It's not just great cormorants that are getting harassed. About 50 miles southwest of Drury's birding grounds in Casco Bay, state biologist Brad Allen is documenting declines in several avian species, some common, some not. This day he's looking for great blue heron, designated a species of special concern in Maine. There's
2: one right there. Is that an eagle or a great blue heron?
6: It's a heron, a majestic, prehistoric-looking bird. When Alan last studied the species in the 1990s, he counted roughly 1,200 nesting pairs along the main coast. Now the coastal heron population is a third of that.
2: So it's down quite a bit. Because, you know, we've actually witnessed, uh, you know, some sub-adult bald eagles in the heronry. Right when the, maybe the young are just getting ready to fly for the first time, the getting in there is just catastrophic.
6: Alan says some eagles are shifting their diets. They're contending with a big drop in their traditional coastal prey, cod, salmon, and other fish whose populations have been hurt by overfishing, dams, and warming ocean temperatures.
2: In the absence of a, a bay full of fish, they're going to eat the next available chunk of protein, and it might be a, a cormorant or a, uh, or a young gray blue heron.
6: Seabirds face other threats as well, but the eagles are putting real pressure on. And with their population growing at an 8% clip around the country, it's an emerging issue for wildlife managers. Right now, the only real strategy to deal with rising eagle predation is to scare them off. Maine hosts the only U.S. population of Atlantic puffins, a clown-faced little avian popular with birders. During the nesting season, when the puffin eggs and chicks are most vulnerable, volunteers are posted at some of their colonies to wave off marauding eagles. But when humans aren't around,
1: puffins, like the other seabirds, will face a growing number of eagles on their own. That's Fred Bever of Maine Public Radio. If you want to see the video of a bald eagle attacking an osprey nest, go to our Facebook page at Next New England. Now imagine if that marauding eagle could be coaxed to land on your arm and employed as a weapon to kill prey you can't even see. That sport or art is called falconry, using eagles, hawks, or falcons to hunt for game. It's been around for thousands of years, started in China, and it's practiced widely across New England. VPR reporter Kathleen Masterson went to learn more at the Green Mountain Falconry School in Manchester, Vermont. The director took her on a walk through the woods with two Harris' Hawks named Monty and Wallace.
10: Harris' Hawks tend to be um, quite vocal as birds of of prey go. They're also fabulous hunters, so we can practice the sport and we can catch a whole range of prey. I mean, anything from bugs and snakes, they'll catch all the way through to things we're actually intending to catch, like pheasant and rabbit.
3: That's Rob Waite, who runs the Green Mountain Falconry School. He's been training birds of prey for over three decades. And today, he's taking me hunting. This means I'll be wielding a trained Harris's hawk on my gloved fist, casting it into the wind, and hoping it finds some small game to catch. I promised my friend rabbit stew tonight but wait tells me I might have to settle for chipmunks. The Harris's hawk is still very much a wild bird, so if he catches anything, we'll have to distract him and take the prey away. But first, I meet the dark brown bird with piercing black eyes, who will be my hunting weapon today.
10: This is Monty, and uh, he's a male Harris hawk.
3: Harris's hawks have tawny reddish shoulder patches and leg feathers. Under the tail, there's a flash of white. They're clearly birds of prey with their hooked beaks and curved talons.
10: So Kathleen, if you're ready, I'll show you how to hold him.
3: Wade has me slip on a dark leather glove that extends almost to my elbow onto my left hand so my dominant right hand is free.
10: They say years ago though, that uh, a knight on the horseback would always have his sword hand free. So, like <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I believe that. <laughs> so, he's gonna jump onto your hand. I'm going to have you make a fist right now with your gloved hand. I put the jessies between your middle fingers, and that means when you grip, it gives you can a good hold on them.
3: The jessies are leather straps tied to his ankles that serve as a kind of leash. Monty is surprisingly light, given his nearly four-foot wingspan, and I can barely feel his talons as he grips my arm and walks out onto my fist. And those bells that you hear, they're attached to the hawk's ankles. They're the key to retrieving the game once the hawk has killed it. Falconers use those bells to track and then hear when the hawk pounces on an animal so they can rush over and take away the kill before the hawk devours it.
10: If you find your hawk and he's in the meantime made a kill and eaten it, you can't get him back. Now he's not hunting for us, he won't retrieve the kill, so he'll actually eat it. So that helps me get to him quickly and remove the kill before that happens.
3: Food is the motivation for pretty much everything the hawk does. It's also how falconers train the bird to return to its handler. These Harris's hawks we're flying today were born into captivity, but they're still wild, and the hawks have to be trained to become accustomed to humans, and most importantly, to obey the signal to return to the handler.
10: In short, it's all done with food. So the bird doesn't come back to us because it bonds with us or because it wants to hang out with us. It comes back to get something to eat. So unlike a dog where you you can praise it, where you can pet it, that's not gonna work for these guys. So to make sure the bird's got an appetite and therefore a desire to come back to us, what we do is we weigh the bird every day. And the weight will actually let us know exactly how hungry the bird is.
3: The bird's flying weight is so precise that if a Harris's hawk is just three-quarters of an ounce heavy, he's grounded, because he won't be hungry enough to return to his handler. But today, Monty is ready to fly. I keep my elbow tucked into my side and my fist out and walk with Monty into a nearby mowed grassy field. Then Waite takes Monty onto his arm and shows me how to release the bird to hunt.
10: So what we do is we cast the bird, and that means a gentle throw into the wind, because like an airplane, they'll get lift. And all I do is grip tightly with the, onto the jesses, and I'm gonna step as my left hand goes forwards, sweeps forwards, and releases the jessies right at the end of the throw.
3: With a regal flap of his wings, Monty is airborne, and he flies to a tree branch some 20 feet away. He settles into the perch, intently scanning the field. Waite says he can see prey as small as a mouse, up to a quarter mile away. But after a few minutes, Monty doesn't see anything, so we want to call him back and walk into the woods.
10: And you would now need to get this bird back, and the signal for him to come back is a raised, gloved hand. It's his guarantee of a reward. So if you want to raise your hand towards me and make a fist.
3: Almost before I can even tell where the hawk is coming from, feathery wingtips brush my face, and Monty lands gracefully on my fist, gobbling the tiny bit of meat on the glove. We didn't catch any dinner on today's walk, though Wallace pounced on a tree frog in the meadow and devoured it so quickly I only saw the legs hanging out for a moment before they disappeared. It's surreal to think that this calm hawk, resting on my hand, who seems so obedient, is a wild creature that for years was used as a weapon.
10: Your hawk was really an, an early gun. And when the gun was invented, then it nearly died out because people decided well, it's easier to go hunting with a gun than a hawk. But people kept, kept it up really as a, as a passion. And it became, it became something that you do because of the love of it.
3: For Wait, he's turned that passion into a career. He and other falconers are keeping alive the thousands-year-old partnership between humans and birds of prey.
1: To see pictures of Kathleen Masterson and her new friends, Monty and Wallace, go to our brand-new website, nextnewengland.org. There you can also find past shows and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, or Stitcher. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Maraskin. The executive producer is Katie Zalarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Thanks to Rob Gabery for his website, Wizardry. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Broadcasting Network, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.